0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field.
1: Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are continuing our Journal Club series with Annals of Surgery, and today we are going to be discussing the paper pre Ventral Hernia Repair, a decade-long prospective observational study. Today, we are honored to have Dr. Todd Hanford, who is the chief of GI and minimally invasive surgery at Carolinas Medical Center. He's the director of the Carolinas Hernia in- Institute and a re- very well-known expert in the field of abdominal wall resection. We also have our guest today, Dr. Dana Tellum who is the Associate Professor of Surgery and Director of the Comprehensive Hernia Program at the University of Michigan. Thank you for joining us and welcome on Behind the Knife.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you.
3: This is uh, Karen chabert coming in. I'll just uh, sort of give the summary for our listeners of what their paper found. Um, so Dr. Hennifer's group at the Carolinas Medical Center, they first described the preperitoneal ventral hernia technique in 2006. And they're now reporting on their 12 year experience with this repair in 1,023 patients. In their series, uh, 69% of the hernias were recurrent and 23% were incarcerated. About 40% required a component separation. And the average hernia size was about 210 centimeters squared or eight centimeters in diameter. The average mesh size was 800 square centimeters or 30 centimeters by 30 centimeters. In 90% of cases used synthetic mesh the use of biologic mesh was associated with worse outcomes and more frequent recurrence as expected. The median length of stay was five days, and 27% of patients had a wound complication, most often a seroma. The wound infection rate was 15%, and the mesh infection rate was 1.7%. Only 5% of hernias recurred over an average of two years follow-up. So all in all, they sound like very good results in in, in challenging cases. And so, Dr. Hennifer, could you start by walking us through your technique and just keeping in mind that our audience goes from medical students all the way up to department chairs.
2: Certainly. the When I first started repairing hernias a long time ago, and no one ever you know, grows up wanting to fix hernias, for gosh sakes, or even becomes a surgeon wanting to fix hernias, but I developed a real interest in it first in doing it laparoscopically, and then as the complexity of the cases that I began to see didn't fall into a laparoscopic, I guess a laparoscopic realm, I started doing more and more open hernias. I was somewhat dissatisfied with the mesh overlap that I would get with a Reeve stopa or retrorectus repair. Fantastic operation, and I think it should be the go-to move for the majority of open ventral hernia repairs. But what we began to see in our data is the more mesh overlap you you were able to achieve, the lower the recurrence rate would be. It did not impact quality of life of the patient, nor did it impact uh, complications associated with mesh, including infection. And so, developing a preperitoneal space, I did it quite honestly, I did it by accident in one case where I was going to do a, a stope repair. The peritoneum was fairly thick, got in the preperitoneal space, and then circumferentially just dissected the preperitoneal space well out laterally, sutured it closed like you would a retrorectus repair or standard retrorectus repair, completely excluding the intestine. And then I just started mimicking that over and over again. Uh, this began a number of years ago. We first reported on this. Um, it makes me feel old, but 2006. And we've subsequently continued to do that and and, and defined and redefined the technique that the way we typically will start. And the way I typically train or teach uh, residents and, and fellows in doing this is we'll start in the in the essentially uh, in the space of Ratsy's. Getting into the space of retius, most residents and fellows have done this before. If they stay they will blindly place a balloon in that space to do a, a tap or hernia repair, they see that space over and over. So teaching someone from a known something they know and then expanding it into unknown, I find to be very helpful. We typically will start in the space of retius and then move out laterally in the preperitoneal space. You have to be careful that you're not actually taking down transversalis fascia. Those people who do a, a laparoscopic angle or hernia repair will recognize if you're taking transversalis fascia down, you'll see the epigastric vessels, you'll see the, the rectus muscle fibers themselves. But if you stay low and then work your way along the pubis, avoiding the iliac vessels, and then coming laterally, you can get into the space much like when residents spend time doing a transplant or kidney transplant. Once you get in that space, you can I begin to start to peel the peritoneum back toward the wound. And going from lateral where there's typically no scarring and peeling the peritoneum back toward the wound over and over again, as you walk up the abdomen, it tends to, you're able to peel the peritoneum all the way back to the midline. We take the falciform down that for, uh, in most of our patients. And I think in this study, the average BMI in these patients was about 34. So they have a plentiful falciform. Use that as your preperitoneal space going even to the xiphoid and even above the xiphoid, and then repeat the maneuver on the other side. And you know, after after doing this a few times, our fellows and, and our residents really, they become, um, this, be, this becomes a kind of a known factor for them. Even patients who've had multiple previous surgeries and multiple failed hernias. What you tend to, what your, what your abdomen tends to do is to reform peritoneum. And it's where it's truly peritoneum or a kind of a mesothelial layer that looks like peritoneum. You know, your, your, your body wants to make this surface that your intestines can move against um, and, and freely move against. And so we use that. We just use that space over and over. Um, we've done we do various forms of this. Um, uh, sometimes we take down a bit of the transversalis fascia. Uh, Laterally, the transversalis fascia behind the transversalis muscle and above the peritoneum is super thin. It's about as thin as peritoneum. So we'll move in and out of transversalis fascia, which really adds no strength to the abdomen, but adds strength to the peritoneum. And again, I tell my fellows all the time, I don't care what layer you're in out laterally, whether it's transversal, pre-transversalis fascia or pre-peritoneal, as long as you know what layer you're in. And we'll use that to our advantage.
0: And then once you dissect all the way out there, you... Place your mesh in the standard fashion. Um, is so, that how this
2: works? Yeah, and so once we, what we'll do is, we then once we've done the preperitoneal dissection, you know, so once we get in the abdomen, we don't, and, and, let me, and I guess I should start that. So is is once we get inside someone's abdomen, we'll only do adhesiolysis between the intestine and the and the peritoneum yeah. or the anterior abdominal wall. Unless someone has a history of bowel obstruction, I do no intra-loop because that just increases your chance of enterotomy and increases your chance of complication. In patients who have a history of bowel obstruction not associated with their hernia, then we have to chase that. But once we get in pre-peritoneal dissection, we will close the peritoneum with a running two o of typically. You can close it you know, from side to side. You can close it head to foot. And if you can't get the peritoneum completely back together again, we'll use a bit of omentum in the middle of this. Whip stitch the omentum. Essentially what we're trying to do is exclude the intestine Prior to placing our mesh, and your counts are correct. You've examined the operative field. You exclude the intestine, and then the then the operation becomes a lot a lot more fun. You can get
0: really wide overlap, and choose any mesh that you want. When deciding to do these operations, who is the patient that this is best suited for, and when do you go to the laparoscopic or uh, different kind of more standard open approaches?
2: Yeah. So as far as laparoscopic versus open. Um, we did a study that was actually in published in Annals with you guys uh back in I think in 2013. Paul Calavita, who was a was a resident in our lab at the time, uh now is one of my partners, uh, looked at open versus laparoscopic ventral hernia repair. And I and I've i I've wandered through hernia repair. Um sometimes you might think even perhaps with a CNI dog or something, with how little I knew about this. But the but I am uh it, We have discovered that doing a laparoscopic ventral hernia repair actually hurts more than open but it does provide a reduced uh, incidence of wound complications open sometimes is more cosmetic in that you can revise wounds and those sorts of things but it has a higher chance of wound complications but the recurrence rate for both of them is essentially equal for standard ventral hernia smaller ventral hernias People who don't have skin complications or super thin skin overlying a hernia, then I let I describe this to the patient. I'll let the patient decide between open and laparoscopic ventral hernia repair. In patients who have thin skin, very large defects, wide defects that will require. Uh, closure of their abdomen. If they want closure of their abdomen, laparoscopically, we can get the small defects closed. The, the larger defects, we can't close laparoscopically effectively or cosmetically. And so sometimes that will be a deciding factor for patients. They want their fascia closed. Um, but the difference between the two, I'll let patients decide in, in, in small to moderate size hernias. And for the open patients, the majority of them are candidates for a for a pre-parent no hernia repair. I would say that Indeed, probably 85 to 90% of the hernias that I do nail, I will place my mesh in the preperitoneal space.
4: That pain is um, higher in the laparoscopic approach, but now with people using less of the tacks and some of like the glues that are available, is that still the case, or are we shifting towards laparoscopic also being less painful?
2: I think that's a terrific question and you can bleed into this or blend into this, you know, laparoscopic, robotic, extraperitoneal mesh placement. There's certainly in the standard laparoscopic approach where you place the mesh intraperitoneal plus or minus closing the fascia, you're going to need, for me, I'm going to need permanent fixation. You're going to use either permanent tacks or permanent sutures or both. If you use, if you use absorbable sutures and absorbable tacks, And and again, it's it's a problem for us as surgeons that we don't have efficient and effective prospective data to tell us exactly what we should do. And we should all, I mean, honestly, we should be participating in studies like this. But I make a living, and I'll say it somewhat uh, tongue-in-cheek, I make a living fixing failed hernias. So, you know, I don't know what the denominator is in this. But the numerator in patients who have absorbable materials or glue when you're placing a mesh against the peritoneum, the failure rate, and I just see loads of failures in that. And again, I, I stand at the bottom of a funnel and the anecdotal experience is not data. I'll say it straight out. But for me, if you look at our own data, permanent fixation, if you're going to put mesh against the peritoneum, I think is I think it's important. Now, extra peritoneal, like you, know, you get someone like Igor Belinsky at the Arundel Hospital, who is. A, and I would just say out loud, that guy's a surgical unicorn. He is an amazing surgeon, and so he can dissect that space robotically or laparoscopically, do a robotic tar, or laparoscopic tar, and place the mesh directly against the fascia with a closed peritoneum against the, against the intestine with very wide overlap. Now, does glue or absorbable sutures and, and fewer sutures and fewer fixation, less fixation work? I will say it makes sense, but in the same breath, I will also say that we have no data and so if my mesh and I and, and again, I can break it down as an, you know, I, and I don't want to sound like an old, you know, the old man get off my lawn, you know, hernia surgeon. But I will say if my mesh stays where I put it, what's my recurrence rate? It should be about zero. And so you, you, you can expand your abdomen two to one. And I want my mesh to stay fixed to that abdomen. But if you have. Glue or something that goes away that holds the mesh there until the mesh is fully fixated, you would expect that the mesh doesn't stretch your admin does. And so until I have data, and again, you get people like Igor Belyinsky and, and Conrad Ballister, uh, those guys uh, are, are are they're fantastic surgeons, but I'm and, and they're following their data, but I'm until I commit to this, I need to see their long-term information.
0: Great, well, uh, let's loop Dr. Teman to the conversation here who she runs the comprehensive hernia program at the University of Michigan. Um, what is your approach to these large hernias at Michigan? Are you guys using the pre approach and then and how are you guys uh, incorporating robotics into your repairs?
5: Thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege to be here with Dr. Henneford and all of you so thank thank you again um you know. I follow a lot of the similar guidelines that Dr. Hennifer does in terms of minimally invasive versus open repair. To be quite honest with you, I'm not doing a preperitoneal approach. I do a retromuscular approach, but I do agree that sometimes, you know, the overlap is a little bit underwhelming because really, even with the best job with the retromuscular, unless you're adding a posterior component, you're only getting... 15 to 20 centimeter diameter um, across. And when you have somebody with a very rotund abdomen or somebody who puts more mesh, you know, weight in the middle, I do worry a little bit about that overlap in that space. But again, you don't want to end up doing components on everybody either. In terms of robotics, you know, I'll tell you, we haven't adopted that at Michigan as much. And I think mainly because I'm a bit skeptical, I think as Dr. Henneford said, about what are A, our long-term outcomes and B, what problem are sometimes we trying to solve. And while Igor and Conrad do a beautiful job, you know, you have to wonder if the extra expense and the cost and what our responsibility is also in the healthcare system, because I believe the only data that is on robotic hernia repair, which comes from the h s q c showed the big savings was maybe half a day or a day at a hospital stay, but you wonder, does that really justify the cost? And so unless we're seeing recurrence rates that are really down at five to 10 years, patient reported outcomes, which are really stellar, again, I deal with a very kind of funneled in population who are looking for cosmetic results too. And I, I've just found, especially with these retro muscular approaches, that we don't get the skin infection, we don't get the infection rate, you know, at the same rate we have before. And I really just haven't seen a downside or a replacement for robotic surgery for that yet.
4: So uh, moving on to just patient selection, uh, what do both of you use as far as exclusion criteria, especially when we're talking about smokers or um, patients who are morbidly obese? Is there a BMI cutoff? Um, as far as especially these reoperative hernias where, you know, they're having complications, they need some sort of operation, but again, they have these comorbidities.
5: So I think there's two ways to fix outcomes. One, you choose better patients, and two, you do a better technique. And I think for hernia, patient selection is extraordinarily important. When we looked at our data across the Michigan Surgical Quality Collaborative, because we're fortunate to have a statewide collaborative that captures population-based data, What we saw was that people who have Class two obesity, whose body mass index is 40 or greater, um, insulin-dependent diabetics, are much, much more likely to have issues, at least in the 30-day perioperative period, and we're looking into it more long-term. So for a purely elective repair, one of the initiatives we have right now is around prehabilitation and patient-appropriateness and selection, and not saying no to patients, but working with our patients to get them to surgery. I think putting guardrails up and saying, OK, we're not going to you know, do X, Y and Z is fine. But I think out of the, the other mouth is you have to have programs that help these patients, that follow these patients, that give these patients opportunity. And that's what we've set up at Michigan where we have a rehabilitation clinic. We track them, we follow them, we help them with weight loss, referral to bariatric programs, smoking cessation um, and keep an eye on them to make sure that an elective situation isn't turning urgent or emergent.
2: I think that's so beautifully stated. Uh, it's a, it really is quite remarkable. The, we have done we, we've talked about prehabilitation for a long time and, and we put out our CEDAR app and I gave grand rounds at, at an institution at university last month. and They looked at our CEDAR app and, and, and in that we looked at 501 of our patients, 1.3 million data points. And this, the c has been out for, my, I guess, about uh, almost six years now, five and a half years or so. And in that data, you know, we demonstrated, and, and it's my data with Kent Kircher's data and one of my partners for almost 20 years now, we looked at our, you know, where we could make a difference, and we can make a difference with diabetes and weight loss and smoking. It sounds, and right now it sounds like, well, duh. But for a long time, you know, we just we had patients who would come in, we'd pat them on the head, tell them their diabetes is under control, please stop smoking. We'd send them out, we'd operate on them. We now know that if you want to make real change in the way you take care of patients, not just hernia patients, but all major operations and even some minor operations, is starting with the patient. First and foremost, that will improve your care out of the gate. You learn nothing new technically. You're the same surgeon. Your prehabilitation is the way to go. And when I gave that grand rounds, one of the students was like looking through the Cedar app and she goes, wow, you can get really high complication rates. And I said, well, yeah, those were my patients. But what we've learned is that we have to, we ha- we, we have to do better. And when, as we've tracked our patients over the last 18 years since we've had a prospective database, you know, we, we stopped doing smoking in 2006. And, and if you look at the paper that we're talking about today, smoking fell out. In the overall complication rate, because we stopped operating on smokers, and then wow. it says they were smoking, but we had them, but they had to stop. So now we've eliminated that as a as a as a risk factor. We nail their most recent data, you know, if we get a diabetes, you know, they got to get their hemoglobin A1C less than seven point two. We're not doing an open operation for them. And then weight loss, and, and, and I think Dr. Tellem is right, you know, a BMI of 40 is a, is, is, is a real cutoff point. But for us, every point of BMI that you decrease down to a BMI of 26, so 25, why not 25? Well, our data broke at 26. You'll decrease your chance of wound complications by 1.06 times. And for every point of BMI, we save about $3,000 in wound-related complications over a year. And so it becomes super expensive. So why BMI of 40? I mean, I, if someone's got a BMI of, you know, of 35 in my clinic, I want them to lose weight. A BMI of 32, I want them to lose weight because I want to squeeze my margins as hard as I can. So weight loss, absolutely. And this rolls into also like in, in the operating room, the things that happen in the operating room that, you know, that directly impact our outcomes and improve you know, cost and, 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 and taking care of patients. No question.
0: And do you so have a team around we have you that to supports to help meet these goals of treating the diabetes okay. and the weight loss cuz like you said it's easy to say these things but you really have to have a a team that kind of drives this there's no question and, and initially it fell to the
2: surgeons uh, at the Carol's Medical Center we we do have a plan to open a preoperative clinic so patients can walk from our office to another office and that's the that's the intent that they can get medical care and get support and have a dynamic uh, back and forth, you know, you have you know, family uh, either interacting with their family doctors or internal medicine doctors and nurse practitioners to help them achieve their goal, achieve their goals. I think that the one thing they have in Michigan, and, and I and I give you know, tremendous. Uh, I guess, respect to what they do and tracking these patients and staying up with these patients, because you can say, go out, lose weight, stop smoking, get your diabetes under control, and we'll operate on you. But one of the things that we, the paper that we just uh, presented at the American Hernia Society, and uh, Katie Schlosser, one of our fellows, won the, the National Research Award from the America, America's Hernia Society, is that if you track these patients over time, their hernias continue to get larger, the defect itself gets larger, and also the hernia volume gets larger so you do have a finite length of time that these patients can get themselves ready for surgery and we still affect a good hernia repair this is yeah. i've never I, so i have not myself ever put myself under constraints to, to say you know over the next you know over the next 18 months on average the patients would increase their defect size by by 80 square centimeters and so so now i feel a Bit, you know, especially with slightly hard, larger hernias, moderate-sized hernias, I feel more pressure if I'm going to be a good doctor and a good surgeon to impact these patients. You know, contract their their internal medicine doctor, their family doctor, to help me get them ready for surgery and their prehabilitation, and then operate on them.
5: I'll tell you, one of the most effective things that we did was creating this um, clinic where I essentially, we pre-screen patients um, when they call in for areas that we know that are risk factors, BMI, smoking status, and um, diabetes, and even older adults over a certain age. And simultaneously with my clinic, we have what I call the prehabilitation clinic, which is run by my amazing advanced practice provider. So if she needs my help or something happens, I can pop my head in, but essentially what we need to do and what I do is we loop in these patients so that they feel like they have a home, they feel they have somewhere to go to. And I think the other nice thing about my second hat being a bariatric surgeon, it's very comfortable for me to talk to people about weight loss and kind of where to go and how to stage these things. And you know, we're in what year one of our of our program and just anecdotally kind of starting to look at the data We can get people through this and we've had a pretty good smoking cessation rate. We've had a good conversion to bariatric surgery rate. I think as we were, as I was saying before, the key thing is we kept these people, we kept these people in house and kept them a home, which keeps people out of the ER and keeps people out of trouble. And to me, that was the rewarding part that at least people felt cared for instead of when you kind of just shut them off and say, you know, good luck and give them a pat on the back and they just sort of run out into the world. So. Hopefully we'll have data by the next America's Hernia Society about the impact on patient care and eventual conversion to operations.
2: You can yeah. see why I love to hear Dr. Tellum give a lecture about how to take care of patients. This is like real world, the way to take care of people, give them a home. Don't make feel don't make them feel as if you know they have to go out and do this on their own. I mean, this is the way you take care of people. And it's just fantastic. Great yeah. advice.
1: Now, moving on to two words, component separation. We see that this is increasing in popularity and you mentioned uh, using all three approaches to component separation when you are unable to bring the fascia together. Could you uh, explain how you go about doing each of these um, from the pre-peritoneal space and which component separation is best in which in what situation?
2: Well, certainly, the- I think that one of the when I see a patient in clinic, component separation begins in the clinic. When I see someone in clinic who's got a large defect, has a large hernia volume as well, the 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 what's outside their abdomen versus inside their abdomen, the people who are going to need a component separation in our hands in the more than fifty percent of people who have a hundred and fifty square centimeter defect, and especially in patients who have who have greater than fifty percent of their volume of their abdomen' outside when you look at a can scan versus inside. When you do volumetrics on these folks, those people have a higher chance of complication, going to need a component separation. And the first the first thing that we do in these folks is weight loss. The way to, and I talk very simply to the patients is you know, the consideration of the way to get it, I mean, just talk about like getting a suitcase closed. You know, what you got so much on the outside, I got to put everything on the inside and I got to get the suitcase closed. Now, if you pull out a pair of jeans and a sweater and in your sneakers, now you can latch the suitcase pretty easily. So weight loss plays a big role in this. I will tell you in, the, in some of the, the study that we've just done, weight loss in men, if you only get five kilograms of weight loss in a man, it means more for hernia volume and also getting your abdomen closed than it does in women. This because of distribution of fat. And so women can do it. They just have to lose a bit more weight. But we we do weight loss. We try to avoid a, a component separation if we can. And so if I will use weight loss to get someone to a point where a component separation will close their abdomen. I would, if someone needs a component separation, I want to do weight loss to the point that they don't need a component separation. So I want everyone to buy in and lose weight one way or another in the operating room. I listen to surgeons who'll say, you know, I closed a 30 centimeter defect in, in you know, with a you know with a tar or an external oblique release. I think what we really need to do if we're gonna if we're gonna really talk about component separation, what we do is we do the adhesive lysis of the abdominal wall, we reduce the intestine inside the abdomen, and then we put tension on the abdominal wall with copers, and and then we measure what the defect size is, and then we make decisions about what we're gonna do as far as component separation. I have all component separations in my bag. I don't walk into the OR most of the time knowing what I'm going to do, except in extreme cases. And so I start by putting tension on the abdominal wall. If I can't close them, the first thing that we're going to do is do a, a cut the post director sheath on one side or both sides. And I've had a number of surgeons who will watch us operate that say that cutting the component the, the post director sheath doesn't give you release in the abdominal wall. It absolutely does the majority of the release that you get from a tar from a transverse abdominis release comes from cutting the posterior rectus sheath when you go back and and and, and you cut the the posterior the, the internal oblique and the transversalis muscle you get very little, little release from both of those so cutting the posterior rectus sheath if I I cut one side then the other and then I and then I reassess or both and if I've got a defect at that point with the intestine reduced and I've got a defect that's got more than a four centimeter or so uh, gap, what I will then do is I'll do an external oblique release. I do a vessel sparing external oblique release, the perforating vessels that come from the, the deep epigastrics, umbilical perforators, two centimeters above to five centimeters below is where you, the umbilicus is where you tend to find those vessels. I will spare them and I'll do an external oblique release on one side. If I can close the abdomen, then I'm done. My mesh go- For me, my mesh goes in pre I've taken the preperitoneal space down and I've, I've closed it and then, then I'm done. If I have to do an external oblique release on the other side, then I will do that. When I do a TAR, most often it's because if I've got significant scarring of the undersurface of the abdominal wall and I don't need an external oblique release. And because if I can't take the peritoneum down effectively, I try to put my mesh in the preperitoneal space or in, I should say better, an extra peritoneal space. So it should be, it would be retrorectus and preperitoneal as extends laterally with a transverse abdominus release. Doing a transverse abdominus release for the most part, the way I first just, and and, and Yuri Nowitzki deserves great props for, you know, for, for describing this and and really, really technically defining it. When we first started doing an operation like this, we published it in 2006. And essentially, what I called it was the extension, the, the preperitoneal extension of a stopper repair, because I just didn't think I got much release by cutting through the post elemental, the internal blank and the transverse abdominus muscle. And so, for the most part, when I'm doing a, doing a component separation, it's the walkthrough of reducing deciding, you know, cutting the post to sheath, do I need an external blade, can I get a, can a, will a tar help me? And then um, and then closing the abdomen after mesh placement.
3: That's fascinating and it's great to hear, you know, how you might use each uh, approach to its own unique advantage. To to start wrapping up, I heard anecdotally about a few interesting aspects of your technique and what, what you're doing at Carolinas. Can you tell uh, us and our listeners about your use of Botox injections to bring the fascia together?
2: Sure. Um, it's interesting. We we presented this at the Central Surgical. Sean Maloney, one of our uh, one of our residents, who's working in our lab this year. He looked at uh, 775 of our component separations, and and it's just much a, a product of Dr. like Dr. Tellman's practice and my practice, and and I love it. I stand at the bottom of a funnel and you know putting Humpty Dumpty back together again makes me really happy, and I'm glad that there's residents and fellows who have interest in this. But as far as it, when we do component separations, I mentioned earlier, weight loss is, is always part of, of the way we trying to prevent component separation. If I could not do external oblique releases, it would improve my outcomes because of wound related, wound related complications. I love to hear Dr. Tellum's point on this, but wound related complications because of the skin and subcutaneous tissue advancement that's required or, or the, that, the flap development that's required. And so we, one of the things that we do know is that, so maybe, just thinking about it, maybe we should eliminate external oblique release and just bridge patients because of the wound complications. Well, in the data that we presented the, at the central surgical, and I have a paper coming out in surgery, if we didn't get the fascia together, our, our hernia recurrence rate was dramatically higher, five times higher in these patients than if we did a component separation. Component separation was actually protective. For hernia recurrence, so in an effort to reduce the external need for external oblique release and to actually cut someone's one of I mean someone was walking around with their you know one of their three external obliques or, or their oblique muscles cut for the rest of their life. What we started using is Botox. We put it through its paces. It's been well described. The guys in Guadalajara, Mexico, first described it in 2009, and they deserve lots of credit. Um, a, uh, a surgeon in, uh, in, in Sydney, Australia, uh, has uh, Nabil Ibrahim, has done great work looking at cat's hands and looking at the release that you get chemical, par- essentially, it's a chemical paralysis of the obliques to allow you to get the abdomen closed. And so, what they've shown in Guadalajara and in, in Sydney is that if you inject all three obliques, typically we use 300 units of Botox. You inject them in three different places, typically in the anterior uh, axillary line, 150 units on each side, evenly divided, that you get somewhere between five and a half to eight centimeters of release of the abdominal wall, flattening and thinning of the obliques, which have contracted back. The volume of the hernia has actually decreased it, so you get more intestinal on the inside of the abdomen. And what we've seen in our initial patients is that in we use it in, Fistula patients with big defects, mesh infections with big defects, and we saw, I'm just going to tell you, Botox works. And now what we're trying to do in our practice is eliminate external oblique release, decrease wound related complications, save money, and perhaps afford patients getting fascial closure and sparing their obliques. It's it's new. It's relatively new. It's been around for about 10 years, but it's relatively new in North America. There are selected centers who are spending some time with it. But uh, in our first patients now, we've now done about 90 patients In our first 90 patients, we've been extremely pleased with it.
4: Uh so with that Botox, though, do you have to do i guess repeat injections because I would imagine that it's going to just put tension once the Botox have worn, has worn off, So do you have to continue continuously inject the Botox until everything's healed?
2: I think that's a that's a great question we We, we inject it about four weeks prior to surgery and and again, I'll just say that we're mimicking others' success. We have not done our own individual experiments looking at different doses of Botox, different timing of using Botox. We're actually putting it through its paces with known evidence. And so we'll inject it four weeks before we get a, a great effect and a lengthening of the obliques in these patients. And what will end up happening is that one of the cool things about this, it's almost like a party trick is that their abdomens will, once you put them back together again, they look great when they leave the hospital or everything of stay is about five and a half days. They come back at, at two and a half weeks and their adamant has expanded. The Botox continues to work, and the muscles relax you. And and I can make up all kinds of answers and sound authoritative, but there's no question. I believe that you take actually take tension off the midline closure, which may be protective. I have no idea. Maybe it's protective. But then in about three months, their muscles will come back online, and their adamants tighten back up again. But what we've seen is they don't over-tighten. It's much like if someone... You know, gains a lot of weight and then loses a lot of weight and they, they come back to a steady state. Or you take someone who is pregnant, has a baby, and then their, their muscles come back online and they pull their abdomen back to a normal set of tension. And so we've not had patients who complain of an overly tight abdomen who pull their abdomen apart and that sort of thing. It's, a, it's kind of a, they come back to a natural state of tension
0: in there down the wall. Well, Dr. Hindeford, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us on Behind the Knife, and we appreciate your efforts in continually continually improving hernia care throughout this country. Um, and and I was hope, wondering, is there any videos on YouTube or something we could provide our listeners so they could get a good visualization of this? I feel like that is uh, a lot of this is being able to visualize it.
2: I'll tell you, I have not done that, but uh, I will I will do that for you. And then I can let you know. We can make a video and, and do a total pre-parental dissection, and then and then uh, and make it available to you.
0: We could actually, yeah, we could actually post it where they could watch it on their phone, um, just directly like on iTunes. It would, it would sh- share it as like a podcast. It'd be pretty cool, uh, like a video cast. Um, but thank you again for all your work, and and thank you. Uh, Dr. Tellum for uh, helping us understand how to improve outcomes in in hernia care. And I know our listeners will enjoy uh, reading this paper when it's published in the Annals of Surgery. Until next time, dominate the day.